Why don't we pray before we look at this together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness uh, in not leaving us in the dark, but speaking into our world, speaking to us uh, through the prophets and then ultimately through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray now that as we uh, look at the fourth uh, chapter of this series, uh, that you'll help us to understand a little more of your purposes so that we can live in the light of them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to uh, start by thinking a little bit about defining moments. Uh, Everybody has defining moments, even if it's simply, on that day I was born and on that day I died. And uh, if that's all you've got, it might be there on a headstone, but that would be a little disappointing, wouldn't it? Uh, My guess is there are more significant things that people might have. You might uh, perhaps think about the day you started school, if you can still remember that, or maybe a lot happier day was the day you finished school, or the day you started in a job, and then the day when you were able to walk out of the office for the last time when you finished that job. I understand that the two best days in a man's life are the day that he buys his first boat and the day that he sells it. Um, Sorry, Wilbur. The the reality is that there are big things that happen in life that define us. Uh, The 3rd of December, 1983, was a big day in Fiona and my life. Uh, But then so was the day we had our first child and our second, and our third, and our fourth, and that's it for us. Um, There are big occasions that happen, and they help us to think about life. Well, there are two big events, two defining moments that we're going to look at today. The first happens in the life of David, King David, and the second happens in the life of Jesus. And you'll see that one prepares us to understand the other one. Uh, Just a little bit of a a recap, first of all, over the last couple of weeks. uh, We've seen that God, having created the world, people rejected this God, and then God, instead of giving up, had made promises. Promises initially to Abraham. Uh, We saw that God made promises of blessing, that uh, Abraham would be the father of a great nation, Uh, And that nation would be blessed and be a blessing to others. We saw that Abraham was going to be given a name uh, by God. We saw that there would be a land that they would live in. And we saw that God would rule over this land. Now, when you get to uh, exploring what comes after that, it can be a little bit hazardous. Uh, There are all kinds of things that seem to go against this plan, not least of which is the fact that uh, Sarah, his wife, is over 90 years of age when they have their first child. And as you keep reading through the book of Genesis, fertility is one of those issues. It seems that uh, the, the women are described as being barren, and yet God is making a promise to go through that family line. And then God brings about Uh, their um, ability to have children and so that promise is worked out and we follow this all the way down through the book of Genesis and we arrive at Exodus where the people of God have become a great nation and uh, they have enjoyed the blessing of God but they are not in the land 
And um, in the beginning of Exodus, we find that the people have now entered into slavery. And so God makes a promise, this time to Moses. And through Moses, the people are rescued and they're brought to Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19, there's a defining moment for the people of Israel. Uh, they're gathered together at Mount Sinai and God speaks to them from the mountain and he tells them something of what he has in store for them. And I'd just like to read to you just a few verses from Exodus 19. Uh, God is speaking about how he saved them. And through Moses, uh, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on an eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. And then uh, as you read on, the people are given the Ten Commandments. Uh, they're described, uh, the description of the law and how they are to live as God's people is worked out. And so now you have the promise taking another form. So the, the people of God having come to Mount Sinai are now given the law and they enter into a covenant where they are to keep that law. But of course they don't. And so instead of being 11 days in the wilderness, they are 40 years. And uh, after this, uh, Joshua leads them into the promised land. There's all kinds of conflict that takes place. Uh, you get to the book of Judges, and again, there are many threats to the people of God, and God raises up judges, and they're saved, and then they are uh, other threats again, and God raises up more judges, and the people are saved. But at the end of the book of Judges, there's a very sombre verdict on the state of Israel. Let me just read to you the last verse in the book of Judges. It says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, uh, it kind of sounds a little bit neutral, doesn't it? I mean, people are showing initiative. Everyone does as they see fit. But if you've just read the book of Judges, you'll know that it's really uh, a pretty harsh verdict. They've got no ruler and they're living in selfishness and rebellion. That's what's going on. Now, with, uh, with the book of Samuel, we get introduced to uh, a couple of really key figures. There is Samuel, uh, the priest, and then there is the first king that gets anointed. His name is Saul. And uh, you can read the accounts if you're following through the Bible in 70, and I encourage you to do that with the daily readings. You'll have read already of, of Samuel and of Saul. And Saul is known to be a standout amongst the people. Uh, he's tall, he's handsome, he's strong. He's the kind of leader that people would choose. Uh, you know, if you've got two captains and they're picking teams, Saul would be the guy that would get picked first. But this is not God's way. And Saul rebels against God. And uh, the people effectively end up with the kind of king that they deserve. But God doesn't give up on them. He has another plan for a king. And this brings us to David. David is a king according to God's own heart. There is nothing physically special about David. He's shorter than his brothers. Um, he, he's not a standout warrior. He's a shepherd boy. 
And in many ways, as you read the account of his family, he's kind of the errand boy for his older brothers. And yet God has a plan that through David, he will continue the promises that he's made and make new promises to the people. And that's what we're going to see today as we open up 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you've got your Bibles there, um, we've, we've just covered uh, uh, probably a thousand years or so, and, um, and now we're going to slow down. And we're just going to look at what God has to say uh, through the prophet Nathan to David. We'll pick it up at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 7. After the king was settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Now, just a, a couple of little explanations, first of all. Um, the ark that's on view here is not the ark that Noah brought all the animals into. So it's not a huge boat that's being hidden under a tent. Uh, it, this is an ark that is a kind of large box that contained the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. So don't think Noah, um, think Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Um, these are the tablets of God and the people had been carrying these tablets in the ark and had become somewhat superstitious about them in some ways, but that's another story. David doesn't think that it's right that he is now living in a palace while God is stuck in a tent. That's the kind of presenting problem. Well... Nathan says, do what you think's right, but God has other thoughts. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, are you the one to build a house to dwell in? Sorry, to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Where, wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Quite simple. God's saying, you might want to build me a house, but I've never asked for one and I've never needed one. Now, of course, God is not contained within a house or a box or a tent. I mean, God is the God of the whole earth and they would know that. But symbolically, David is feeling guilt over having more for himself than seems to be given to God. So this is his plan. Let's build a temple. Let's build a place for the ark. Let's build a place where God lives. Verse 8, now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. 
and I'll provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Now a couple of things to notice there. David's wanting to do something for God but God's reply is, no, I'm going to do something for you. And what God says he's going to do for David picks up on what God said he would do for Abraham. Do you hear it there as I was reading it out? Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. I will provide a place for my people and I will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. I will give them rest from their enemies. See, the promises that God made to Abraham, he's not forgotten. A lot of history has gone past, close to a thousand years of history, and God continues to remember those promises, and now they're repeated to David. But there's going to be a new edge to these promises. You see, when God does something for David, he's going to do something that is out of proportion to what David wants to do for God. What does David want to do for God? Well, he wants to build a physical structure for God. What's God going to do for David? Well, listen on and we'll see. Verse 11, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors... I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, there's something that we need to understand here. There's actually a play on words. David wants to build God a house to live in. God is going to build David a house. Well, David's son anyway. And as you read on, you can see the successor to David, King Solomon, and we'll look at him next week. He will actually build the temple for God. Um, the people will move the ark from the tabernacle, the tent, uh, that's moving around all over the place, and put it in the holy holies of the temple, which is a magnificent structure. It's not David who's going to build it, it's Solomon. But the real action isn't what David's son will do for God, it's what God will do through David's son. What God's going to do is build a house for David. Now, house can mean two things. It can mean a physical structure, 
and there's a sense in which there's a physical structure on view here. Um, a physical structure that was magnificent in its day. It'll get destroyed when the Babylonians come in and invade Judah and destroy Jerusalem. And then it will get rebuilt again, never quite the same. And it's still being rebuilt at the time of Jesus under King Herod. And you can read about the physical structures and so much of the history of Israel between 1000 AD, BC up to 70 AD is tied up with the physical structure, this house, this building. But what God is going to do is build David a house through his son. The house not being a physical building, but a dynasty. So you might know the, there are certain TV shows that have been called the house of somebody. There's the house of Windsor, right? Um, I think that's in English or something. Um, the house of Tudor. Um, there, there's the house of Maccas, right? You see them all around the highways and... The, um, there's a, no, forget that last bit, that was silly. There's a dynasty that's on view. And what God's saying is, you think you're going to build me a house, i.e. put me in a box? No, you're not. I never need a box. I'm going to build you a house, and it's not going to be a palace. It's going to be a people. It's going to be a dynasty. And your son, who will be my son will rule over it. You see there in verses 13 and 14, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now that sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? That's what Solomon does. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, kind of. But when you read on, Solomon gets replaced by Rehoboam and then the kingdom splits and then you get some disastrous kings and you find as you follow down now two different family trees that the line of the kings of David comes to a disastrous end when the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem, the temple and take captive the leaders of Israel. So it's pretty miserable at that level. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Notice this is God speaking. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Kind of sounds like judgment upon Solomon but my love will never be taken away from him well that's God continuing his promise as I took it away from Saul your house that is your dynasty and your kingdom David will endure forever before me your throne will be established forever there's a bit of a puzzle isn't there when we read that it sounds partly like what God does through Solomon, but some parts don't seem to fit. What about this son of David, son of God? What about this throne and kingdom that will be established and last forever and ever and ever? Well, friends, 
we've got to move to the New Testament. And so I want to go to Matthew chapter 1 and read the first verse. And I hope that already, just with four weeks in this series, as you read the first verse of Matthew, it's more powerful than it used to be for you. Because listen to this and try and imagine those promises that God made to Abraham, those promises that God made to David and the dismal, disappointing petering out of the history of Israel in the Old Testament because that's pretty much what happens. We'll see more. And then you get this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I mean, there's expectation in the air. God made a promise way back to Abraham. God made a promise way back with David. Here is the genealogy that takes you to Jesus the Messiah. Or if you come down all the way through all of these names to verse 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And you read on down a little further and you discover this one is to be born. Jesus, he will be called because he will save his people from their sins. And the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, the opening paragraphs of the New Testament are showing that God has kept his promises. Promises to Abraham, promises to David. We'll see more promises over the next couple of weeks. But God is keeping his promise. This is his story. Now, I want to take you to an, a defining moment in the history of Jesus. And it's in Matthew 16. And I want you to keep what we've just read in 2 Samuel 7 in mind as we hear this account, probably an account which is known to many of you. And I'll pick it up at um, Matthew 16, verse 13. Jesus is with his disciples and they come to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And he asked his disciples, sorry, I'm in Matthew 16, verse 13, sorry. Who do people say the Son of Man is? He's doing a little bit of a poll, right? What are they saying out there? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Reasonable kind of guess. What about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Did he get it right? Yes, read on, next verse. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So the first thing to notice here is Jesus is described by someone around him as the Messiah. The Messiah is the same word in Hebrew as the Christ is in Greek. So you've got Messiah, you've got Christ, they mean the same thing. What do they mean? 
They're not Jesus' surname. They mean literally the king of God's kingdom. That's what the Messiah was. The Messiah was anointed by God to be the king in his kingdom. And you remember when God spoke through Nathan to David and he said, the one who comes after you will be a king forever. The one who comes after you will be not only your son, but my son, the son of God. So what Peter's saying here is, it's climactic. Saying, you're that guy. You're him. You're, you're the one that, that we read about back in 2 Samuel 7. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the son of David. You're the son of Abraham. You see how it's coming together? This is the man, right? This is the one who was promised. Well then, what will the Messiah do? What will the Messiah do? Well, just before we read, what was the Messiah going to do in 2 Samuel 7? Remember? He was going to build a house. Is that right? A dynasty, a people for God. Well, listen here. Simon Peter says, You are the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, I know a, a lot of ink has been spilt over trying to work out what it means for Peter to be the rock and, and whether this is Peter the first pope or, you know, all this kind of stuff. But forget all that for a minute. Forget the bit about Peter for a minute. What is Jesus saying he's going to do? Build his church. Um, not a, a, a stone structure, by the way. That's not what church means. The, the word church here is a gathering. It's an ecclesia. It's a calling together of people. You see, the Messiah, he had a job description. He was going to build the house of God that he would rule over as king for all eternity. Jesus comes. He's identified as the Messiah. It makes sense. I'm going to build. I'm going to build a church. I'm going to build a gathering. I'm, I'm, I'm going to build people who will be the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus isn't launching out on a new topic. Oh, you're the Christ. Yeah, and by the way, Peter, I'm, I'm going to build a church. No, he's saying, this is what I've come to do because this is what God promised the Messiah would do. And how will he do it? Well, have a look at verse 21 from that time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life he's just been declared to be the Messiah he answers that yes and he will build a people gathered to God how's he going to do it? by dying on a cross. Kind of seems a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? I'm, I'm going to build this kingdom that will last forever. And then Jesus says, I'm going to be dead in a, 
in a short time. In fact, stronger than this, he says, I must go to Jerusalem where I must suffer. You see, God's way of building the kingdom involves the sacrifice of his son. Jesus Christ has come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Jesus is the temple, the place where you meet God. He is the sacrifice that is offered on behalf of the people. He's the king who will rule over these people for all eternity. Jesus is what it's all about. Now Peter, for his extraordinary exclamation about Jesus being the Messiah, the son of the living God, shows his form when in verse 22, having said that he would die and, and rise again on the third day, Peter takes him aside and says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, Peter has an insight given by God, but he's not yet understood the fullness of what God will do. That'll come later. Well, what does the Messiah want from us? Well, let me just finish with this. In verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What does he want from us? He wants us to stop putting ourselves first and to turn to Jesus. Because you see... If we put ourselves first, then we're claiming to be king or queen in our own lives. But God has said there's only one king, and that's King Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's my son. He's the one who will rule forever. And so what does Jesus want from us? Well, not much really. He's given us his life and in response he wants us to hand over our lives to him and trust him for eternity. I want to say to you friends, if, if, if you've not come to the point of knowing that Jesus can be trusted with your life, it is the most important and the most liberating, freeing step you can ever take. It's a step into reality, not away from reality. Because if Jesus is the king overall, we make a huge mistake living as though we're in control of our own lives. He wants our best. God promised to bless. God promises that living in his kingdom is the blessed way to live. Now, blessing doesn't mean everything goes well in this life. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. In his day, taking up your cross wasn't putting on an item of jewellery. I think I'll wear the cross today or maybe the fish or the dove. 
No, taking up your cross was to give up your life. And you've got nothing to lose if you give up your life for the sake of Jesus. Hear what it says? What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? See, if you give up your life for Jesus, then Jesus promises that you'll be with him for eternity, with him ruling over you for your good. And what's, what's that mean for us now? Well, I think first of all, it means following Jesus. But secondly, friends, I think it helps us to understand what salt is to be about. What salt is. See, Jesus, the Messiah, is gathering people together. That's what's going on here. We're being gathered together. Um, that's at the very heart of what it is to be Christian. Church isn't kind of, well, you come to Jesus, that's the essential. You come to church, yeah, that's optional. No, it's actually, you come together with Jesus. Because Jesus is gathering people together. We're here for one another as we're here for Christ. And if Jesus is building his church, then he's calling you and I to be a part of that as well. That means calling people to be a part of Jesus' church and building each other up 